The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Welcome back to Feminist Book Club, the podcast. We're not just about feminist books. We are here for social justice, literature, and media in all its forms. But we do that through an intersectional feminist lens. Thanks for being here. Let's get started. Hi, everyone. My name is Alana Amor Coben. I am a content contributor with Feminist Book Club. And today I'm talking with Jordan, CEO and founder of Analog Records. How are you doing today? I am doing great today. It's so good to talk to you. So good to talk to you. I love you very much. Excited that you're here. Would you like to start off uh, by talking to us a little bit about who you are and what you do? Yes, yeah, sorry. I like left you hanging there for a second. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm Jordan. I am a student at Berkeley College of Music. I study music business and songwriting, and I'm really, really passionate about managing artists in a way where they still have the rights to their own creative vision and, of course, their money and their content and everything they create. Yeah. I'm here because I sing and write songs, but I eventually found out that I love music business, and that's when I started Analog. And, yeah. Why don't you talk to everyone about what Analog Records is, for those of our listeners that don't know? I would love to. So I started a company called Analog Records. It's a record label based out here in Boston. We're a student-run label completely, but we're not affiliated with Berkeley. So we have students from Berkeley, Northeastern, and other Boston um, colleges. Oh, also McGill in Canada. And we basically just all work together. So we have producers, artists. We have you who does marketing. We have booking agents. Um, I manage the artists. And we all come together to make this really beautiful company where we all create music that we really, really love and that we're really excited about. So it really just, I feel like, cuts to the basis of, like, why we all fell in love with music. So it's such a wholesome, like, company to work at, and I'm just so passionate about it. So it's really, really nice. One thing that I think is very, very special about Analog Records is the community that makes up Analog Records, because for a record label, not only it being like an independent record label, but for the industry as a whole, it is sort of its own beast in its own. It's like a, it's like a gay unicorn. <laughs> <laughs> Would you be able to elaborate on how that all came together? Yeah. So let me think. It's hard because I have the worst memory of anyone. Basically, I am surrounded by really, really talented people going to the school I go to and being with friends with the people I'm friends with. And it got to a point where I'm like, oh my gosh, all of these people could literally be so successful and have so many people love their music if they just knew how to reach the right people. And then I realized that that's like what I cared about more than actually being the artist. So 
I started managing my friends, just freelancing, and doing their social media, and planning their rollouts, and all that stuff, and then that ended up turning into analog. But what really happened, a crucial detail, is we were in a class together (laughs) where we had to develop a business plan, you and me, and I started a fake record label called Analog Records, where I was like, all of my friends would be on a record label, and we would make great music, and it would be so fun. And then I made this whole business plan and worked on it for a semester, and I was like, I might as well just launch this company and see what happens. And so I did that in May of 2021, and here we are. Yay! Yay! Um, As a company that is so gay... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> Stop. and femme heavy and so open in identity these are identities that are not that are somewhat paraded in the music industry rather than celebrated and nurtured and in terms of music industry financially nurtured which is sometimes more important than the other things um what what do you think the impact is of that within analog records and that there's a record label that is really getting off the ground um, that is lacking in white note presence and being so heavily led by thin bodies and queer bodies? Well, I know personally, I grew up in South Texas and South Louisiana. In the Bible Belt, I have two pastors in my family. I didn't know what a lesbian was until I was 14 years old. So, I think not, there's one whole facet of it that's creating representation for these, these types of people that isn't fetishized or sexualized or like put out there just for content. Like these people that are actually being supported and loved and that shows young people in the LGBT community or young women or whoever you are, it shows people that they can be loved too for whoever they are and like they can nourish themselves creatively and surround themselves with people that really, really accept them. So there's a whole representation aspect of it that's really beautiful, but also it creates such a safe space within the company. I feel like the people that work at Analog are my best friends in the entire world. I would die for every single one of those people. I love them. And being able to just be who I am around a bunch of people who can be who they are, I feel like is so vital for any artistic space. Because if you can't express yourself in all aspects of yourself in a creative way, there's no way you're going to create something that matters to you. In my opinion, I just don't think that's possible. So I think creating safe space is also so vital for any record company. And I think that being so femme heavy, as you put it, just adds to that. Coming up from your background and also identifying as queer or as a lesbian, what has been your experiences finding your own space 
as a queer woman in the music industry, especially in a place like Berkeley, which for listeners who aren't familiar or not, is up to date, up to date uh, because the school is doing a lot of work to keep it contained. Uh, the <laughs> last couple of years at Berkeley has been very eventful in terms of conversations surrounding gender, sex, and um, race. Not that you need to share any of your experiences with that, particularly if you have any, but sort of finding your path, how did it get here where you were confident enough to say, okay, I do want to create a record label where this is such an important part of how we run and how we function? You have great questions, first of all. <laughs> <laughs> Everything you've asked, I'm like, hmm. <laughs> I like the way that you phrased the question because it sort of implies that I'm really confident at Berkeley. <laughs> And that I feel like I have a space there. And I don't necessarily feel like that's completely true. I worked really hard for a few years to feel heard at Berkeley and feel represented and feel like I was doing something that changed anything. And a lot of it is because I was young and I wasn't experienced, but I do feel that I wasn't heard at all. So I feel like in a lot of ways, me starting analog was a way to be like, okay, you know what? I'm going to do my own thing. And you guys can have your little clubs. You can have your, you can have your ensembles. You can have your Berkeley jam bands. You can have whatever you want. I'm going to go be over here. And if anyone wants to join me, feel free. <laughs> so it's really taken a lot to sort of be like, okay, here I am, and that's cool, and people care that I'm doing that, because I don't get a lot of recognition from the institution itself. The bringing up the the clubs and the jam bands and the ensembles is a, is a very, very, very real thing, and I would like to spend a little time talking about that because a lot of people do look towards Berkeley because it presents itself as a very diverse place. And it's a very open place and not that it isn't in a lot of ways it is. It is also Berkeley College of Jazz, but you are picking on a lot of other things. But um, being one of three or four black women in the, in the guitar department and then seeing the amount of, oh, I, did, I never specified. I did go to Berkeley. I do have a degree. <laughs> from Woohoo! Woohoo! Um, you're almost done. I uh I jumped the COVID shit and went as fast as I like I could possibly go. It is nice seeing the amount of women starting to pop up more and really be present in the Berkeley community. And a lot of them are of color and a lot of them are not straight. So it's really, really cool seeing this community build and it come in so strongly after this really amazing couple of years that the school has had but for anyone who is looking to go to berkeley i would i would say that you are not going to have a lot of time to practice you will learn a lot you will meet a lot of people which is not more important but it is very crucial to your success period but it is not a safe haven it is not absent from the things that we're dealing with in the news the world is reflected and the people that live in it. And Berkeley is full of people. 
So I think it's really funny because we do have this sort of circle of people. Like they all run in the same circles. These women that you're talking about that are getting so popular and getting so much recognition at Berkeley. But it's funny because it's not any of the people that anyone originally wanted recognition from. Like we were all like, oh, maybe one day these people will pay attention to us and these people will do these things and everything will be cool. And then we just created this whole subplot of Berkeley. We just created this whole other circle of people that support each other instead of looking to this outside source of like telling us that we're good, of this validation that we thought we needed. So it's just, I think that's also a really, really cool aspect of what's going on here. I think that's an especially important thing to bring up because it's the seeking of validation from people who do not reflect us in identity and do not reflect us in values. Yet it's something we all tend to go through for our first year and a half, at least at Berkeley. And so the people who get out of that sooner, shout out to you. But the thing that makes it difficult is that in ways they're like shoveling support and money and, and business and career venture. Like these people are at Lollapalooza and there are people who are, I will, I'm going to say it vast, like way more talented are pumping out a lot more interesting music. They do not sound like another TikTok trend. They are really doing the work in this institution that told them that this was the top school for them and this is the perfect place for them. It's still funneling money into the next America's Next Top Model. Or uh, that's not even what I want to say. American (laughs) Idol winner, singer, style person. (laughs) You know, I still go here and I want to degree. So all I'm going to say is the amount of resources that Berkeley has compared to the amount of students that get them is absolutely insane. I can name about six people in our class that get probably 50% of the attention for Berkeley. <laughs> yep. Sorry. And that's all. And that's all. But... It, I don't view Analog as Berkeley affiliated. We go there, but they don't do anything <laughs> to support us. So I feel like um, I feel like this leads nicely into the next question, which is, how do you feel identity ties both into business as well as the create the creative output within the industry? I mean, that's a hard question to answer because, on one hand. I mean, I feel like my identity influences everything I do just in the fact that it makes me more of an empathetic person. And like, I can't, I can't afford to mess up as much as other people. And I can't afford to, like, I just, I can't afford to be very bad because then people will be like, I knew I didn't like her. So I'm really, part of it is like, yay, gay, gay representation. And another part is like, spite the straights. So working on that, but it's good because 
it it makes me a more caring person. It makes me care about the way that people's identities affect the work that they create and the way that that changes what they bring to a workspace. So it's really, really important to me to, like, bring everyone's perspectives into account whenever we're making, like, big decisions in analog or when we're thinking of bringing on a new artist or when we're pitching a show or all these things. Everyone just has such different instincts of how to go about things. So, I mean, obviously my identity affects everything I do, but I think it just really made me open my eyes to the way that people see things differently as well. I think that what you said about, like, I have to, I feel the need to be better because something's already working against me. Something's already, the the innate assumption is that I'm trash, which I Mm -hmm. think is something that not only women go through, but any marginalized community goes through, especially in such a, a, a competitive environment. Like, the basis April K on TikTok and Instagram She's a fair-skinned black woman with a natural afro, and she's playing bass, which is, for some reason, bass players are, like, constantly kind of swept under the rug. I don't really know what that is. I don't know what that's about, because everyone I've met is, like, so chill. Coolest people ever consistently. The greatest little group. Yeah, but a lot of her video captions will be, like, weird men continue to comment that, like, I was a little bit out of time or, you know, like just stuff like that. And I didn't really realize I kind of took that. I was like, oh, like whatever. Like I felt initially like it was sort of like something to to get people to be in the comments. Like you got this, you're, you know, blah, 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 blah. But then I looked back on it and I looked back at my time at Berkeley and my, my issue was not that my concern wasn't that I was a woman. I found that teachers and other students in the guitar department who were predominantly male had an idea about me because I was black, which is always fun when you get to guess which part of your identity is the issue for the person. But yeah, you really do. (laughs) Go ahead. Well, no, I was, I was like, I was thinking of one of those prize wheels that's like, (laughs) (laughs) yeah, it really does end up being uh, being a lot more prominent than you think it would be. And it does affect you, KTV. I now know that when I post on Instagram that I posted a Master of Puppets cover, obviously. Stranger Things, Eddie, Doja Cat, apparently. (laughs) And some dude hopped in the comment section. He was like, you got to do downstrokes, man. The alternate picking is throwing it off. And a part of me was like, bro, sure. You know, yeah. it's out there in the world, but then there's, there's another part of me who's like, you're kind of right. You're right. But I just think it's funny that, like, dudes don't have to worry about that. There are, like, aspects yeah. of our community that never they even... just look at each other and they're like, yeah, he's pretty good. Right on, bro. That was solid. I'm not getting tips in the comment section. <laughs> Literally. It's insane. Like, wait, have you ever seen a man comment tips on another man's video? <laughs> no. No. That would never happen. You know... Now I'm, like, angry. I never even thought about that. So that that being said, now that all of that's the dirty laundry is out, what changes do you would you like to see in the music industry in terms of representation and community? But, like, also, like, what functional changes would you like to see in the music Ooh. industry? Yeah. Because there's, like, people will be like, I would love to see, I don't know, more women wearing pants. 
or something. And it's like, okay, <laughs> that's not like a real thing. So someone who is like fully in the industry, leading the cause, representing, running businesses. Okay. First of all, we need more female identifying CEOs. Please, for the love of God, if you are female identifying, think about starting your own company. You get to work with who you want to, when you want to, and be a girl boss all in one. Like, for example, um, I was running Kelly's release show the other week because she just released a new song called The Way You Love Me by Kelly Flatley on everything you listen to music to. And the man, the man emailed my assistant, Ava, that he talked to me. And he was like, I talked to your boss. He seemed really great. And Ava was like, Jordan. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So that was funny. But yeah, more female identifying CEOs. Maybe pay artists a livable wage for doing a job that you appreciate every single day. That would be cool. Maybe give artists a right to their own work and a right to their own creative vision and bodily autonomy, which apparently we have to say now. More TikTok plants. I think they're funny. (laughs) (laughs) We're going for structural change here, people. Foundational shifting. (laughs) We're having real conversations. I think that labels right now run top-down. Whereas the managers make the decisions and the artists listen. And and they're forced to because of their contracts, um, because record labels will withhold money from them, withhold rights to their art from them, withhold rights to make choices about their upcoming releases, rights to even release what they said they were going to release. The label owns everything. So that's just twisted. I feel like labels should completely be artist-centric. We couldn't do what we're doing if they didn't do it. So the fact that some labels treat artists the way they treat them is hilarious. I love my artists. I worship the ground they walk on. They're like, Jordan, go do my homework. And I'm like, okay, be there in (laughs) time. But yeah, I just think a lot of people are in it for the wrong reasons. And we all decided to do music because we love what it is. And there was some some song or performance that changed us forever. And I think if we all go back to that, music industry might be closer to what it should have been. We are getting tight on time. And I would first like to say that even beyond identity, what you just described as like the ideal future for the music industry is very, very true. I feel like if you watch any documentary at any time on any artist that ever existed, you would firmly stand <laughs> on that yeah. side of like, the debate every time. It really, the things that are being discussed seem like common sense, but they really, really are a consistent issue uh, yeah. for artists. And despite it, I mean, the record industry really does have a super, super short history, but enough history that like, this should functionally be where we are headed. And it is a ideal plan for the industry that is that naturally incorporates equity and identity and representation in a way that uh, does nothing but benefit everybody, including the listeners. Um, Absolutely. So for anyone in the industry, 
I encourage you to look back on that because everything that was just said affects you. In reality, listeners are heavily affected by the industry as well, even though you feel like you're just, you know, clicking play on your cell phone or whatever, like this all impacts you. Listeners don't usually see how many decisions go into that clicking play. Yeah. There are so many people behind each. If you have a playlist of 30 songs and there's a group of 30 on each of them, think of how many people are affected. And that's one playlist you listen to each day. There are so many people working to create music that you love and so many people that need your help on changing the industry because it's rough out there. (laughs) And that being said, what's next for Analog Records? So I'm really, really excited. We are currently signing some more artists and producers. So if anyone wants to join, you can find Analog Records on all of our socials at Analog Records. And you can submit to us on our website, analogrecords.co. Or you can just email me, jordan at analogrecords.co. Anyways, we are releasing a full-length album for Kelly Flatley this September, which I'm really, really excited about, and an EP for Tristan on August 26th. So that's very exciting. Two really, really exciting projects. Other than that, we have two singles in the work, but we haven't announced them yet, so stay tuned. Yeah, a lot of really exciting stuff is on the horizon, so it's fun. Yay! And all the links for Analog Records, their website, their socials will all be linked in the show notes. I would like to thank Jordan again for joining me and joining Feminist Book Club, and we will set the listeners free for today. Okay, thank you. Thank you, Thank you. Bye. Bye. So hi, this is Ashley. I am a Feminist Book Club content contributor, and I am joined today by Angie Hoffman. She is a RWA Golden Heart winner in 2019, and her professional background includes stints in law, education, and ecotourism. And she joins us today to talk about her romantic novel, Dream On. Angie, thank you for joining us today. Hi, thanks so much for having me. So my first question is, what is your definition of feminism? I think um, feminism, goodness, I would say it's equality. Um, You know, I I suppose we could get into, you know, the nitty gritties about different types of feminism, you know, intersectional, but at its core, you know, I would say, you know, equality for for women and, and beyond that, you know, equality for, you know, for everyone. Yes. And what is Dream On about? So Dream On is a romantic comedy, and it follows a 25-year-old law school grad who gets into a car accident and winds up in a coma. And while she's in this coma, she dreams of her boyfriend, except when she wakes up, she realizes he's not real. He was a figment of her imagination. So it's a year later, she's moving on with her life, she's starting a new job at a high-powered law firm, moving in with her best friend in in Cleveland, Ohio, and she walks into a flower shop one day, and boom, there he is. Her dream man is actually real, and she knows things about him, except 
they've never met before. Mm -hmm. And so they get together to try to solve this mystery of why did she dream of him, you know, during this coma and they embark on a little romance. Um, although, uh, she soon starts to wonder maybe, maybe fate has some tricks up its sleeve. And I think when, when reading the novel, it's kind of easy to think that Cass who's the main character is dealing with brothers even though um, she's, it seems like she's dating brothers, but one, she's kind of this man that she's dreamed of. And then another one, she's, you know, kind of leaning more towards. So when did you, what did you decide for Cass's dating dynamics? So I didn't necessarily want the story to be so straightforward, you know, mm-hmm. woman dreams of this guy and then Ta-da, there he is and happily ever after, you know, uh, there definitely has to be conflict. And a big part of Cass's journey is figuring out exactly who she is. And more importantly, I think um, for the story, what she wants out of her life, you know, what does she want to do? What makes her happy? And that's not limited to, you know, career. It's also in her romantic relationships. So as she gets to know this, you know, quote, <laughs> dream man, she has to learn to be honest with herself. You know, what is what is it about him that, you know, makes him so perfect or is he even so perfect? So that's, that's all part of her journey. And the title of the book is so spot on because with, especially with the word dream, because it's not just her relationships, but as you said, um, is her understanding herself and her dreams. Mm-hmm. She also, she has a hobby that she kind of comes in and out of. And she realizes that when she does this hobby, it brings the best out of her, but it also provides this conflict. So it's not just about Cass dating, that's a part of it, but it's also her kind of dating herself, especially as she's awakened from this coma. Right, exactly. And how was incorporating your work experience in law to this story? So I I practiced law for a hot second <laughs> many years ago. Um, I did go to law school. I, in fact, went to Case Western Reserve University like Cass. So I drew on that, I suppose, uh, from my own experience, you know, law schools, um, you know, uh, no walk in the park. It is pretty difficult. You're pretty stressful. Um, and I only practiced uh, maybe for about a year or so before I sort of realized, eh, maybe this isn't quite for me. So in terms of, you know, her own journey, and she wants to get this job at a high powered firm, you know, which is sort of the, the quote unquote ideal, you know, the, the thing that all lawyers are supposed to want. I definitely drew from my own feelings of, you know, I know that this is the thing I sh- that people say I should be striving for. It has the most prestige, you know, you can make the most money, but does it really make me happy? Not really. <laughs> uh, so it was fun to explore that, you know, through her character. Um, and besides that, I will, I will say that I did take some um, uh, some literary liberties with the law and like firm life, you know, so it's lawyers reading, it might be like, nah, I don't know, like, maybe this isn't exactly how it works. But uh, I thought it, you know, kind of added to the story. So forgive me, lawyers, if you read it and, you know, <laughs> you spot the discrepancies of what, you know, maybe big law life is, is exactly like, but um, otherwise, I did try to, you know, be as uh, accurate as I could bringing my own experience into the book. And you the setting of at Cass's law firm, is definitely a part of her world, but it's only a certain subset of it. Like she, mm-hmm. she's dedicated to her work. She's dedicated to the vision that she's had, but it's not something that dominates her. She gets to have experiences despite the pressure of her work. So it's a, I think it's a relatable experience for anyone, whether you're working in a law firm or not. 
And then you also get sort of fictional liberties to create this world of um, high pressure and then reflecting on what's most important. Right. Yeah. And, you know, someone who throughout my career, you know, I feel like I've always tried to hustle and I'm, I'm a little bit type A, you know, a little bit of a workaholic. And um, so I, I hope that does resonate with folks. You know, I think it's so important to take time, take time for yourself to think about really what fulfills you and to make time for those things if you can, you know. So, yeah. I'd like to talk about Brie, who is Cass's roommate and best friend. How did you develop this character, especially as she is someone who's in a somewhat stable relationship as Cass is dating and exploring her career options and such? So I love writing female friendships. Um, I've been so lucky in my own life that I have a group of friends I've known since college who are just incredibly supportive, you know, Um, and I see sometimes other sort of female friendships out there. Uh, where there might be like some jealousy or some drama. And I'm like, no, 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 no drama. <laughs> so I, I like to, you know, to show that in my books, I think it's very uplifting and empowering. And so I knew that I wanted Cass to have this best friend and I wanted uh, the best friend to also be a little bit of a foil to her. You know, she, they're a little bit opposites in certain ways, you know, personality wise, but they also use their differences to, to help each other out, to lift each other up, to point out things to one another. You know, when, when they need to hear the truth, you know, um, Bree's there <laughs> to tell, to tell, tell Cass how it is. So yeah, I mean, I had a lot of fun creating her character. Yeah. So hopefully folks enjoy, you know, reading, you know, reading the friendship between uh, Bree and Cass. And Brie is a pivotal character, but they, but what I also appreciate is that she's not so much in the story. She kind of gets to be a background and we can watch Brie or cast through Brie's eyes as a reader. So it provides a whole other perspective. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I, and I like, you know, doing that as well. So I dream on is written in first person and I think it's sometimes challenging, at least for me as an author, to write from the character's perspective when you don't have that second viewpoint, because you, know, you see yourself differently than other people would see you. And you know, by using other characters to kind of bring that perspective onto the page, I think is very helpful. So there's another character in the story named Mercedes, and she's certainly interesting, to say the least. And as she works with Cass at the law firm, and she's very ambitious and competitive. But there's also something that unfolds about her. What did you want to say about Mercedes as a character? How did you develop her? So for Mercedes, you know, I don't want to give too much advice yes, for folks yes. listening, maybe who haven't read it. So I'll try to, to moderate my comments. But I guess I'll say in general, I tend to favor writing characters who are not, you know, 100% villain or 100% hero, you know, so I love the gray areas, you know, I think nobody is necessarily 100% of either. And I wanted to show this character where, you know, people might see her one way is like really competitive. And maybe she doesn't have a bubbly personality, like, you know, women are supposed to have. And, you know, she's just very much about like the job and, and she's a little bit cutthroat, you know, and how, how is that perceived if a woman is cutthroat? I think it's perceived very differently than a man, you know, so I wanted that to play into the story. And I wanted her to be a complicated character, you know, with a complicated past and a history and a little bit of mystery about her wondering, you know, why is she the way she is? And I tried to bring, you know, some of that in later on to to sort of round her out so that we get to see, you know, more of who she really is versus what perhaps our perceptions of her 
were initially through Cass's eyes and these you know, limited interactions in a limited work setting, which I think is hard to a lot of times get to know someone, you know, real well, just in one setting like work, especially if there's a, an element of competition going on. And, you know, stories need complicated characters. And I think ultimately they're just characters because if you have this sort of Candyland fantasy of everyone is just colorful and wonderful, it doesn't provide the reality that your book brings or just any story that is reflective and resonates with life. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's, you know, when writing Dream On, I wrote the kind of story that I thought I might want to read. Um, so that's that's how I wrote it. So the story is set in Cleveland. Uh, what was important when writing about the city? So Cleveland is my adopted home. So I live outside of Cleveland. I have for about 10 years cumulatively. And uh, I grew up in Columbus a couple hours south. So I am a, a born and raised Ohioan. But when I first moved to Cleveland, it, it took a little bit of convincing. I'm like, really? <laughs> we want to move to Cleveland? You know, the mistake on the lake. You know, there's a lot of stereotypes about Cleveland, you know, um, Midwest. And um, But what I found over the years is that it is a wonderful city. You know, I think a lot of people don't know it has so much to offer. I mean, it's right there on the lake. So fabulous natural resource right there. It has museums, culture, universities, fantastic medical care <laughs> with the Cleveland Clinic. So anyway, you know, I wanted to show... Cleveland, a little bit of love. You know, I wrote this book during the pandemic when nobody was going anywhere. I certainly wasn't going anywhere. So I think it felt a little bit easier and a little bit, you know, more attainable to write about the city that I was currently in, you know. And also, I, you know, and I kicked around a few different settings that I thought about some different places for this book. But ultimately, I think Cleveland was the best choice too, because Cleveland has so much grit. You know, it's a city that, you know, I feel like gets knocked down time and time again, whether it's, you know, industry leaving in the 80s, you know, manufacturing leaving, you know, it's it's reputation as the mistake on the lake, the Cuyahoga River setting fire in the 70s. Now they've cleaned all that up. But it, the people here don't give up. Uh, and I liked that. It's a very sort of gritty Midwestern city. And I thought that mirrored Cass's character. She's somebody, you know, who's been through this trauma, been through this hardship, and she's not giving up. You know, she forges forward. She wants to move on with her life. And then she ultimately takes the difficult journey of getting to know who she is and what she really wants and accepting that. So I I liked that kind of that mirror with the setting and my main character. And it's such a refreshing setting for a story. And it also gives you the, you give the voice to the city that as you have said, is a bit maligned and, you know, doesn't get the love that it receives. So it's nice to hear from someone who's from that city or lives outside of the city to give this perspective and give this story an extra layer. Thank you. Yeah, I'm glad you enjoyed it. So as we conclude our conversation, what bookstore would you like our audience to buy Dream On from? And what is the organization you would like to amplify? Sure. So I would direct folks to Max Bax Books on Coventry. I'm partnering with Max Bax. It's a local independent bookstore in Cleveland Heights, Ohio, on uh, offering signed books. So if you're interested in pre-ordering Dream On, um, if you order from Max Bax, you can get a signed and personalized copy. Um, so I would direct folks there. Um, and for an organization I'd like to amplify, uh, I'd like to give a shout out to St. Jude uh, Research uh, Children's Research Hospital. I have a family member who recently passed away just a couple months ago, and she was a very big supporter of them. Um, and there's a campaign going on right now in her honor. So if folks want to visit my Linktree website, you can uh, find it linked on all my social media accounts. There is 
a tab right there where you can make a donation to St. Jude. And I will be sure to add your link tree to our show notes. Thank you. Angie Hawkman, thank you for joining us to talk about Dream On. Thank you so much. This was so much fun. Thank you for tuning in to today's episode of Feminist Book Club, the podcast. Want to be part of the club? Here's how you can join us. Obviously, subscribe to our podcast and leave a rating and review for Brownie Points. Follow along on Instagram, Twitter, Facebook, Pinterest, and TikTok. All of those links are in the show notes. Sign up for our newsletter to be the first to know what our next monthly book pick is. And check out our award-winning monthly book subscription service. Oprah Magazine named it one of their favorite book boxes, and Shonda Rhimes called us one of her favorite subscription boxes in general. There are multiple membership levels for any budget, and it's an excellent way to support the show and the voices you heard today. See you in the club. A well-read woman is a dangerous creature, creature. Today's episode is sponsored by Feminist Book Club's weekly newsletter, Beyond the Box. Did you know Feminist Book Club publishes upwards of five blog articles and two podcast episodes every week? Our diverse crew of contributors share their unique experiences on hot new books, older titles that may have flown under the radar, social justice issues that are bubbling up online and offline, pop culture topics with a feminist lens, and so much more. No need to check back every single day. We've now compiled all our content in a weekly newsletter that we send every Friday. What a great way to spend a Friday at lunch. We call it Beyond the Box. You can sign up with the link in the show notes or in the sidebar of our blog. Please note this is a separate email list than our marketing list, and you do need to opt in. Joining Beyond the Box list does not subscribe you to our marketing list. We only send one Beyond the Box email a week. So find that link in our show notes or again in our blog sidebar to get all our content emailed directly to you every Friday.